What is going on, movie lovers? Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening. This will be the last episode of 2023. uh, And I know I, I missed one last week or I didn't do a podcast version of the newsletter last week. So... What I will be doing this week is actually reading through both of the past two newsletters. So that means this week's newsletter uh, covering Ferrari, uh, covering Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell's rom-com Anyone But You, and covering the George Clooney-directed The Boys in the Boat. And then next week, or excuse me, last week when I talked about Maestro, Poor Things, American Fiction, and Zone of Interest. So really this is like the 2023 overall awards movie dump. Uh, I mean, with the exception of anyone but you, these are all movies that are be in awards consideration. And yeah, we're just going to buzz through all of them. So this is kind of a extended version for you. I want to mention up front that I do another edition of just the newsletter on New Year's Eve. So that will be out Sunday morning that ranks all the movies that I saw that were released in 2023 uh, all the movies I saw this year ranked in order. So all my 2023 movies ranked from one to however deep it goes. I think this year it's going to be like in the mid seventies. Uh, so you'll want to see that on the, at the newsletter again at mattcraig.substack.com. There will not be a podcast version of that. So you'll have to see it at the newsletter, mattcraig.substack.com. Anyway, let's start with Ferrari. It's quite fitting that our last featured movie of 2023 is a nice confluence of several of the year's most important trends. It's another movie from an octogenarian master filmmaker, an 80-year-old Michael Mann. He made Heat, Collateral, The Insider. Uh, it's also a great, another historical great man biopic. Think Oppenheimer, Napoleon, Maestro from this year. And it's a movie, at least in part, about an inanimate brand like Barbie was, Air, and the Beanie Bubble, and so many more. During the time of this movie, set in 1957, the Ferrari brand was synonymous with its founder, Enzo Ferrari. He casts a giant shadow both culturally. I mean, Ford versus Ferrari came out just four years ago. F1 popularity is as high as it's ever been. And a giant shadow, literally. He was six foot two during a time and at a place when that would have felt massive. Those shoes are filled by Adam Driver, also six foot two, yet whose presence in this movie feels like 10 foot two. This is the best acting performance of the year, bar none. Driver, with the help of high-waisted suits and Italian sunglasses, doesn't quite transform into the man. I mean, much will be said about his accent, but he certainly captures his overwhelming and relentless spirit. His physicality dominates the movie and makes it impossible for a viewer to take their eyes off of him. Unlike Napoleon or Maestro, the gravitational pull of his son is strong enough to hold up the entire solar system of the movie around him. As with all these great man myths, it's quite easy to see the director as the man behind the curtain. In this line of thinking, Enzo is Michael Mann. A hard-charging, perfectionist, control freak who is constantly let down by the people he's forced to trust to carry out tasks on his behalf. He's worshipped, but also feared. Unlike those other movies, however, this biopic doesn't try to tell the grand span of 30 years plus of Ferrari's life. It sticks him right at a crisis point, 
when his business is on the brink of insolvency and his home life is a mess and tells an entire story through that microcosm. This fixes the problem of feeling like you're speeding through a Wikipedia page of historical events and allows us to dig deeper into each set of problems. In both cases, Inzo's method looks a lot like flying by the seat of his pants. The spine of the story is his attempt to win a 1,000-mile race across Italy using the glory to raise additional money to save the business while balancing lives with two separate families. The movie is effective at making each racing scene feel intense and high stakes, up to and including one of the most visceral and truly shocking visuals in any movie all year near the climax. But don't worry, there's plenty of room for epic monologues from Driver about the single-minded pursuit of perfection in arguments with each of his wife's wives about the unique requirements of his genius. Man's hyper-masculine stories often don't leave much room for, for female characters, which is mostly here tr- true here too, but Laura Ferrari is given some agency thanks mostly to a powerhouse performance from Penelope Cruz. The dialogue scenes between Cruz and Driver are as exciting, if not more exciting, than any intense race scenes. The mistress has no such luck, left mostly to mope and whine. It doesn't help that Shailene Woodley is entirely incapable of fooling us into thinking she could be an Italian woman, a casting choice that holds the movie back somewhat. Still, this imperfect movie produces some of the highest highs of any movie this year. Man has a way of making his stories feel epic and important and obviously abundantly stylish, which more than makes up for a meandering plot. Bottom line, anytime there's a performance like the one driver's giving here, it simply has to be seen. Okay, let's talk about Maestro. And when we talk about Maestro, we talk about Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is the kind of guy who has always had it all. Movie star good looks and an artist sensibility. The attention of the box office public and the respect of the critics. The love of the bros from The Hangover and the hardos from American Sniper and the entire city of Philadelphia from Silver Linings Playbook. In recent years, he's had the ability to act and write and produce and direct. Were jealousy not enough to stoke some resentment, what's always kind of bothered me about Cooper is his disguised ambition. This is why, to me, his perfect role will always be in The Place Beyond the Pines. He's just so thirsty. First time anyone saw him on camera was sitting front row, of course, for inside the actor's studio to ask Robert De Niro a question about acting. There was a moment, Mr. De Niro, when I noticed you. I mean, you, you get the point. It's the type of question that would dry, draw eye rolls if he were a journalist. A show-off question, designed not to learn, but to impress. Because of his talent and charm, he's never found impressing all that difficult. Before directing A Star is Born, he kneeled at the foot of Clint Eastwood. Now, for his second directorial effort, Maestro, he's got Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg on as executive producers. To hear Cooper tell it, Spielberg was developing the movie to direct himself before seeing Cooper on set of A Star is Born and telling him the job should be his. On talk shows and award campaign trails, which he plays so well, he presents these things with an awe shucks humility literally crying at compliments from Spike Lee in one video, even as he basks in the light of their halo effect. The fact remains that one cannot possibly co-write, produce, direct, and star in any movie without without a healthy ego. And when the subject of each of his movies happens to be a narcissistic, damaged genius type, whose flaws are, as Michael Scott might say, loving too much and trying too hard, it's hard to see Maestro as anything other than auto-fiction. The maestro in question here is Leonard Bernstein. 
a musical giant in the 20th century who was quite aware of his own great man bona fides. The movie highlights his career both as an internationally renowned conductor and the composer of Broadway smash hits like West Side Story and On the Town, yet chooses to focus primarily in on his marriage to Felicia Montalegre, uh, a rocky and complicated saga. Much like Napoleon, I can appreciate the idea of deconstructing the gray man myth, uh, but it rings as a false note. The movie soars in its scenes of Bernstein at work, displaying his genius. The scene of Cooper conducting Mahler's Second Symphony is some of the best pure movie making of the entire year, proving both Cooper's obvious talent as a director and performer, as well as his effort. If this is the reason the movie exists, the fact that he would then bend the story around the female counterpart, oh shucks, she's the real hero, is the false humility that actually damages the storytelling. This is by no fault of Felicia, played brilliantly by Carrie Mulligan, one of the most consistently brilliant actors working today. Her character isn't given much to do, aside from fuss to Bernstein, uh, about or fuss to Bernstein, Bernstein, or fuss about him behind his back. But bluntly, there wouldn't and shouldn't be a Felicia, Felicia Bernstein movie on its own. That leads to a wildly inconsistent experience of great moments and long stretches that drag. Cooper is already one of less than a dozen filmmakers in the entire world for whom their work looks and feels like a big, important, capital C cinema. His scenes carry the weight of a Scorsese or Spielberg, which is no small feat and reason enough to sit through it. But if you're coming for a story, you're going to be disappointed. The movie may be restricted by a faithful adherence to historical record, the way Napoleon was, and though I don't know enough about the true events to say definitively, I came away asking the same questions. What was the point of that, or what was he trying to tell us? The movie opens with a quote perhaps meant to combat this, saying that great art isn't supposed to answer, or is supposed to ask questions rather than give answers, but it didn't give me enough to want to grapple with or think about after the fact. Ultimately, the movie is hurt most by its proximity to last year's Tar, a movie that is proving to be one of the most enduring of the past few years. Set in the same world, grappling with the same themes, anchored by a similarly brilliant lead acting performance, Tar just does this story better and more interestingly on nearly every level. The only thing left to be seen with whether Cooper's immense effort and sly campaigning can lead him to the Oscar stage in a way Kate Blanchett could not. All right, next up is the supposed awards juggernaut. We got Poor Things. There's irony in the fact that Barbie is the highest grossing movie of 2023 and is the definitive movie of the year. And Poor Things is lining up to be a serious awards contender. And the two basically have the exact same story. Emma Stone's protagonist is basically Frankenstein and much like her doll counterpart enters the real world in a grown woman's body with no knowledge of how society works. Whereas Gerwig's social commentary starts from authenticity and then bends it almost all the way to satire, Yorgos Lanthimos starts from fantasy and then more earnestly targets the human condition. Anyone who has seen his other movies like The Lobster, The Favorite, The Killing of the Sacred Deer knows his penchant for eclectic characters in strange worlds. And this one's no exception, a sort of retro futuristic, futuristic mix of science fiction and turn of the 20th century society. The production is meticulous and the quality obvious. Plus, he's assembled a strong cast. Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, 
Rami Youssef and Jared Carmichael, not to mention both of my rising stars to watch in Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley. Stone may be the most commendable of all the female movie stars of her generation, consistently taking roles that are not only interesting, but also could be considered altogether risky. She's a magnetic on-screen presence, and but also a surprising one. And here, she stripped bare, quite literally, of all glamour one might expect from an A-lister. Fair warning, the movie features a lot, like a lot, of sex scenes, and most most of them are not of the steamy variety. This movie is a great example of the Academy's Overton window shifting uh, over the course of the last five years or so. I mean, in the, in the near past, this would be considered far too weird and idiosyncratic for awards consideration. Now it seems exactly what such bodies are looking for, a distinctive artistic vision that's mildly provocative on the surface, but underneath affirms the popular social messaging of the times. In this case, you go, Frankenstein Barbie. Okay, next up is Anyone But You. If it's not too late to consider two entries into this year's awards race, I'd like to enter Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell's performances, not in their new rom-com Anyone But You, but on the promotional circuit. If their so-called fake romance truly is an act, they are Oscar-worthy actors. These steamy co-appearances on red carpets, junkets, and every single internet gimmick show you can think of raised not only their own celebrity profiles, but that of their movie, which was, in theory, a long shot to recover its $25 million budget, but surprised with a $10 million opening. Keep in mind, that's bigger than Ferrari's opening weekend. As with all romantic comedies, the success of the movie depends entirely on the chemistry of the two leads which is why the fake romance is such an effective marketing technique. And to be fair, no movie characters could ever be as charming as the real-life Powell and Sweeney, but on screen they do a good enough job of simulating what we can only imagine off of it. The rest of the movie is built to give the viewer enough eye candy not to really worry about much else. The setting on a beach in Australia is gorgeous, the outfits, the makeup, the lighting, the supporting characters, all beautiful. This seems like one of those paid vacation movies for the cast and crew, similar to something like Mamma Mia, and that joy translates on screen. The plot is classic, Hallmark-style rom-com to the core, and one has to almost respect how much they commit to the bit, all the way down to the running into each other's arms and spinning cinematography of them kissing at the end. If you're a fan of cheesy romance, this is a more expensive, more star-studded, more beautiful version for you to enjoy. And it gave us two new A-list movie actors and movie stars for the future. Next up, we got Boys in the Boat. The Boys in the Boat, excuse me. Many people don't realize just how consistently George Clooney has worked as a director over the past 20 years. Releasing one project every three years on the dot beginning in 2002, then 05, 08, 11, 14, 17, 20, and 23, interrupted only by an extra project in 2021. That's a long resume at this point. The reason for the surprise is simply that Clooney's projects aren't all that memorable. There's a couple pretty good ones. The Ides of March I like, Good Night and Good Luck was okay. And there's a couple stinkers, I mean, Suburbicon, The Monuments Men, but for the most part, his projects are just ho-hum. 
With The Boys in the Boat, an adaptation of the best-selling book about the 1936 University of Washington rowing team, he's put together the most straightforward sports movie in years. Every element of the movie is placed just as it should be, like checking the boxes on a formula. Think Miracle or Hoosiers or Glory Road. I mean, that formula exists for a reason, because it works. And make no mistake, this movie works as a faithful telling of the story and an entirely capable of raising one's heart rate during the climactic races. It's just that there's no authorial flair, either visually or in the storytelling, to spice up this classic underdog tale that is far more impressive in real life than on the silver screen. Anyone leaving the theater will be talking about that team rather than the movie itself. If I were a more generous movie watcher, maybe I'd say this is Clooney's intent to be such a humble and generous filmmaker that he competently presents a story whose characters deserve more glory while he himself will get none. He does seem to love the vision of uh, this vision of the American dream where people pull themselves up by their bootstraps and affirm the triumph of the human spirit, you know, etc., etc. I'll let you watch the movie and see if you buy it. Comedies are not respected by awards bodies. A pure comedy, at least as pure as this, has never really been nominated for Best Picture. A voter might say it's because comedies aren't, you know, quote-unquote about something, but apparently it's much more of an achievement to find new ways to make computer-generated images of stuff blowing up than it is to make crowds of people laugh. But aha! There's a way to circumvent these unwritten rules. (laughs) All you gotta do is find... A movie. Find a keen cultural observer to make these jokes be about this country's race problem. Now, if you don't respect it, you're the problem. It's brilliant. Writer, director Cord Jefferson's story focuses on a novelist whose work is respected but doesn't sell because it's not quote 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 unquote black enough. As a joke, he writes a horribly stereotypical book about gangsters and crack and absentee fathers which gets gobbled up by the guilty white literary apparatus, calling it authentic and brave. As cultural critique, the movie is whip-smart and accusatory without being mean-spirited. It draws a very fine line about exploitation without outright dismissing the genre. And even more admirably, it heeds its own advice by filling out the movie with a touching family drama about dealing with aging parents and unrealized ambitions in a way that would have worked no matter what race the main characters are. It's part. It's a part finally worthy of Jeffrey Wright's immense talents in the lead role, with a handful of memorable side parts and a truly scene-stealing performance from Sterling K. Brown as Wright's brother. Of the movies I saw uh, last week, it was clearly my favorite, but it's obvious just from watching one uh, the difference in production quality between this and a maestro or a poor things. It's a non-traditional, it is non-traditional, and I think it could be left out in the cold when it comes to the awards conversation. Where it counts, my running 2023 rankings, it's sneaking its way into the back of the top 10, competing right there with Ferrari for that number 10 spot. Okay, that just leaves uh, from last week's zone of interest. And on the spectrum of you know, art versus entertainment. Jonathan Glazer's Palm Door uh, runner-up, Zone of Interest, 
is certainly near the furthest end of the art side. Its power and its message takes place entirely outside the bounds of the movie's frame, which is pointed toward the pedestrian lives and work of a German family living out in the country. It just so happens that it's the 1940s, and the family's house is just on the other side of the walls of the Auschwitz concentration camp, and the work is as commandant designing new ways to kill thousands of Jews. When compared to Holocaust movies that have come before, this movie can be best thought of as what would happen in those imaginary worlds after the, direct, the director yells cut. The German soldiers go home where they have families and chores and aspirations and joys. Yes, the movie humanizes them, but it masterfully dances the fine line of not empathizing by sprinkling in frequent reminders of the monst monstrosity they are carrying out. If anything, the banality of it amplifies the tragedy. In the background of each serene scene, we hear gunshots and screaming. At night, we see the fires and smoke billowing from the chimneys. The characters don't give it a second thought. Setting out to tell that kind of story, it would be wholly inappropriate to put any kind of adventure or thriller plot. The movie firmly commits to its bit, but makes it both more effective and less entertaining. On a scene-to-scene -scene level, it's compelling, well-acted, and composed with effective simplicity, yet it's hard to recommend unless you know, you're know you in the mood for a moral reckoning. On the whole, this joins a class of movies this year, including you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, May December, and others that are really more about the viewers than the worlds of the movies themselves. When you're watching, you're thinking about the real life, not the characters. It's not prohibitive for good movies, but it can feel at times like it's preaching at me. The best kinds of movies show don't tell and we reach the conclusions on our own okay that is going to do it for this very special double episode of uh the newsletter of the podcast i really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen if you're still listening at this point then you should definitely head over to the newsletter and check out uh my new year's eve post uh, if you're listening to this after December 31st, ranking all the movies released in 2023 that I saw and from one to whatever it is, 75 or 80. Um, yeah, head over to the newsletter. Check that out. MattCraig.substack.com. And if I don't see you over there, I really appreciate you listening this year to this podcast. Uh, the podcast is still fractional compared to who reads the newsletter. And I'm not sure why that is. So if you have enjoyed it in 2023, consider spreading the word, telling someone about it in 2024 so we can continue to build this uh, community up. I love sharing these movies with you guys. That's why I do it. You know, it's uh, 11 o'clock at night here. That's why I do it because uh, I, I really enjoy uh, having these conversations, one-way conversations through the podcast and then, you know, full conversations with you uh, over email or when I see you in person. So really appreciate you listening this year and I can't wait to see you in 2024. Until then, as I always say, I guess I'll see you at the movies.